There is no lack of creative ideas out there. There just hasn't been the vehicle. If you have an idea of how to improve outcomes, um, this is your vehicle for testing that. It helps staff recognize and that they can also ask the what if question. What if we did it differently? You know, most studies historically would take years. This is months. And having this BetaGov program in place allows anybody to send out their ideas and work with them. If it's legal, if it's ethical, and if it's not cost prohibitive, we're going to try it. Welcome to this first episode of Pracademically Speaking. On this first episode, I interview Angela Hawkin from BetaGov and our own Danny McIntyre from the Bureau of Community Corrections. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the inaugural episode of our new podcast, Pracademically Speaking. I'm Brett Buckland, Director of Planning, Research, and Statistics at the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections. And I have a special guest for our first episode, Angela Hawkin, and I'll let her introduce herself here briefly. Angela, she's a professor here at NYU. She's also the founding director of BetaGov, and you'll hear a little bit more about that shortly. I'm very pleased to have Angela with us. Angela, could you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us briefly about your background and kind of how you got into this line of work. Well, thank you, Brett, and I'm delighted to be a part of your inaugural session of, of Thinking Pracademically, a title that I am very much fond of. Um, I am originally from South Africa and was teaching economics uh, in a department of economics and um, had a very traditional looking academic career uh, when I started to get a little antsy and thinking, wow, surely we can do better. Um, I looked around and was very frustrated at what I considered to be a very dysfunctional way of helping government agencies learn. And that's when I stumbled upon my new way of working. The, the BetaGov work, which we'll probably talk a little bit about today, is just over two years old. Um, but I've been working in, in the area of public policy for over 20 years. Okay. And you talk a lot about the term pracademic. Explain to our listeners what it means to be a pracademic. What do you mean by that? Well, a pracademic is just a practitioner who's also involved with research, and many different people use that term differently. Uh, with our group, we really mean it, that it's really anybody involved with research who also wears a practitioner hat. So it might be somebody who has a PhD, but it might be someone who hasn't even completed high school. Um, as long as you're in the public sector and you're enthusiastic to learn and embark on a process to do that learning in a formal way, we assign the title of Pracademic, which is our favorite model looking forward for how we should be learning in the public sector, making sure that practitioners are central to the process. I did a little homework. I googled the term Pracademic. It looks like it's been around for a, a little bit. I think you're kind of credited, at least in the criminal justice field for making that term popular. Any idea where that term came from? So when I started using the language, I wasn't familiar with the history at all. Um, I think we were the first group to coin the phrase pracademia, which is really formalizing that concept and actually creating some, inf some infrastructure around that training people to serve as pracademics. Others have used it and, and still do, and, and sometimes in a slightly different way. So it might be, for example, an academic who then moves into practice and is serving as a, pra as a practitioner who would have that term pracademic, or a, a very seasoned practitioner who's, who's you know, maybe teaching some classes or is entering the academy in some way. So we have a slightly different usage of the term, which is, I think, more inclusive that anybody who wants to raise their hand and think strategically about answering a question using science uh, should have that term pracademic. You've been, I know, somewhat critical of 
the traditional approach to doing program evaluation and public policy evaluation. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the problems that you see with the traditional model of doing research and program evaluation and kind of what's led you to those conclusions. Right. Well, I'm clearly I'm a professor at a university. I'm a big, a big enthusiastic fan of, of evaluation research. But as someone who is working in the field in many parts of the country, had a frustration with the regular model and thought we really needed space for an alternative track alongside the more traditional approach that could take into account some of the issues that made traditional research not as useful as it should be. So here are a couple of things we were trying to address. When we thought of creating the beta gap that we'll talk about now, we thought traditional research is way too slow. Um, the timelines to get the funding, the timelines to get the study started. It's so slow that by the time the research starts, and certainly by the time the research ends, often people don't even care anymore, right? And that excitement around that innovation is, is just lost. And in our work, we often find that if you're thinking about doing something that's really innovative, that there's often a window in time. And if you can't move quickly, all the stakeholders around, the, the, the ones who are interested are just not in place anymore. So you lose the opportunity to learn. The other issue we found is that often traditional research is, 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 is expensive. And when research is expensive, it means we can only do a little of it. What we really wanted to do is make sure we had the opportunity to do a massive number of tests so that we could, so much to learn, right? And to do that, we need a new model that is less expensive. The problem with, 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 with research that's so expensive is we have, I call this monopoly situation where when research costs so much, very few people get to weigh in on what the policies and practices are that are going to be tested and therefore very few people control what becomes an evidence-based program or practice. And we thought that uh, we really wanted to make sure we could open it up, that um, you know we shouldn't have this monopoly model. Anybody who has a good idea should be able to raise their hand and and, and have a good test done. So those are the, those the problems we saw. And we also had, I had some concern, to be honest, about the language of evidence-based practices. Um, again, enthusiastic fan of evidence, enthusiastic about the idea of having government agencies do what works. But the banner of evidence-based practices, in some cases, A, it included practices that didn't always have a really good generalizable research, research that has been shown to work not just in one place, but in many places. But also the idea that, that, that by forcing agencies to adopt a, from a list of specific prescribed practices, we're often stifling the opportunity to innovate. And there are no practices out there right now that are the silver bullet. We should be looking for new ways of doing things. So I was really concerned about uh, stifling innovation. And, and actually from Brett, from you, I learned the term, which I'm now <laughs> have ruthlessly stolen and I'm spreading across <laughs> the country and the world right now, this idea of evidence generating practice, that we should always be mindful sure. of what we're doing, but still create this opportunity to innovate. Sure, sure. And how fast is this idea spreading? I, I think it's spreading really quickly. So um, the work that we do is, is, is at BetaGov, and then just in, just in just over two years, we're now working in 26 states. We've had hundreds of people collaborating with us. I really think there is a, is, is a thirst for this idea of research done with people rather than to people and empowering practitioners who are the closest to the issues. I mean, academics aren't always well suited to coming up with the big ideas of the future. We're far removed from the problems. And the people furthest removed from the problems are not necessarily the best suited to coming up with those candidate solutions. So really integrating practice into into the research process. And I think I think this been it's been met with great enthusiasm. We've been able to um, work very nimbly and demonstrate that there's certainly a proof of concept here for an alternative track that's still respectful of the traditional academic model. And in ways I really think of them now as complementary. Like I think when you have, if you can think about the work we do with practitioners, uh, the, the practitioner-centered model is really on the front lines of innovation. It's exploratory 
exploratory research and if we find something that looks like it's truly going to take hold, we can hand it over to the more expensive Cadillac traditional academic model. I certainly don't see them as competing. I wonder if your colleagues see them as kind of tying into their monopoly. How have your colleagues responded to this idea? You know, by and large, we found that that um, academics in general, m- many have, have are seeking us out now to collaborate, which is wonderful. There's been a few comments early on. I think there was some concern and reservation that we were in, in one at one presentation. Uh, someone described us as the Uber of research, <laughs> and that they thought of um, you know more traditional academics as as being kind of taxis, and that this was really going to displace a lot of what they do. I think we've been very transparent now about what we what we are not trying to to do that at all. Uh, and that we think that the work that we're doing is going to really tee them up to be much more success, successful in the work that they're doing because we're able to generate very quickly a lot of pilot-level data that can indicate whether the bigger projects that they are going to take on really have any merit. Let's go ahead and jump into BetaGov now. Um, I know you have many affiliations. Uh, the one that I think is going to be of most interest to our listeners is BetaGov, and indeed uh, some of our listeners will already be familiar with BetaGov. Tell us a little bit about BetaGov, about the thinking behind it. How long has it been around? What are some of the new and exciting things that BetaGov is doing? Well, that's a, there's a lot packed in there. Yeah. Um, you know, BetaGov is really, the idea here was exactly as the name suggests, BetaGov, beta testing in the government sector. Initially, I'd called it the Center for Practitioner-Led Trials, which I actually liked because it really describes what we're trying to do. But Too nobody long. nobody finds that appealing <laughs> at all. So it was a terrible marketing exercise. And the day we the day BetaGov was born, people were much more enthusiastic about the idea. But it really, at its heart, is this idea of that this is practitioner-centered. This is all about practitioners. And it, it, it really is taking off. We went from a, a tiny little team, and we're still a small team, but we really were able to very quickly uh, move into many parts of the country, learn very quickly that the model applies whether you're in a custody setting or in a probation office, there are people everywhere who are smart, they are capable, they want to learn, and they would love to be involved in a research project. And so what I thought of at the time is really this is, and I use the language now of stretch government, these all of our collaborators, and, and Brett, you know this very well, for example, our colleagues now and our partners at, at PADOC, Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, Everybody has a full-time job, but everybody's stepping up and realizing that they have a role as a thinker. It's, no, it's not, not just pairs of hands. They have a role as a thinker within their organization that can transform practice. And, to get, and so they really stretch themselves. They go above and beyond to participate in this learning model with us and have really just demonstrated to us that there's no lack of creative ideas out there. There just hasn't been the vehicle to pair with that creativity to really move the dial on testing and innovation. Uh, so uh, tell us how the BetaGov process works from start to finish. Sure. So the process starts when you go to our website and you submit an idea through the website portal. We receive those ideas and we you hear back from us really quickly. The first thing we do is schedule a call with you and so we can vet this idea with you and, and make sure we also are able to work towards approval from leadership. And all of these trials need to happen with, with the agreement that leadership is on board. At that point, we'd invite you to a one-hour webinar. Those webin- it's, 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 it's called Pracademia and we actually issue a certificate from New York University to say that you have, part- you have participated in Pracademia and are now trained as a pracademic, ready to work with BetaGov on your the test of your innovation. In that one hour webinar, we, we, we really just discuss the BetaGov model and we describe the sorts of resources that you would receive from us, so the sort of assistance you can expect from us. 
We also very clearly lay out our expectations of you, what we would hope for in, in a practitioner partner to make sure that we are able to do a good quality project together. At that point, you have your, your, your certificate in hand, you're a trained pracademic. We will begin immediately after that session. Uh, once we have a, a call with you to really refine your idea, we will write for you the, the research proposal that describes the test of your innovation. There'll be back and forth between our team and yours as we finalize the plans of that research. Um, you will receive your own BetaGov support team. So you would have a PhD level person who would help think through methodology. You'll have a BetaGov statistician for outcomes analysis if we want us to do the, the outcomes data. There's a case manager who is there to hold your hand through many uh, components of doing this work. And there's also a writer to prepare the write-up of the results at the end. But once we have that research proposal in place and we are green-lighted, off you go. And um, that process... So what are we talking? Like three years? One year? What, what's well, the timeline? From the time you write to us, it depends on the nature of the work. Sometimes we're out the door within a few weeks. Uh, sometimes it could be a little bit more complex. We might be slowed down by a few months, but we usually are able to get out the door reasonably quickly once we clear approval processes. And then the research timeline really depends on you and what you're wanting to test. Some of our studies complete within days. Uh, some complete within weeks, some complete within months. I'd say most typically our projects complete within three to four months. Most wow. of them complete in wow. that timeline. And that's from, you know, we have a call with you yeah. until the one-page snapshot. So I want to talk a little bit about the one-page snapshot. Yeah, please do. So this is the document. We actually tested this. Uh, we were very interested to make sure that people actually consumed the information of these tests. And it turned out that our very academic-looking 20-page documents uh, were, were, were not being read by very many people at all. Mm. And this is true, I think, for all academics, mm -hmm. which is why you know, very few people make their way through reading all the journal articles, right? Um, so 20 pages was not the magic number if you really wanted people to learn. So we cut it down and down to 10. 10 wasn't great, but 10 beat 20. Five pages beat 10 pages. Two pages beat five pages. And one was the magic number. If we had a document that was reduced to one page, many, many more people would click into it and actually read the results of the research. So all of our pilots that we facilitate end with a one-page, we call them snapshots, that very quickly says, this is what you wanted to do, this is how you did it, and this is, how you, this is what you found. But very importantly, the authorship of that, the author credited with that one-pager is the pracademic in whatever agency they are, who was the person who originally came up with the idea. Um, you know, we are, one thing we've really found with um, this academic network, there are now more than 400 people somewhere in the country working with us on some innovation. And that, that network's really growing beautifully. Um, I think once you're part of this academic network, this beta academic network, it's really more than the sum of the parts, right? We really find that people are sharing information very quickly. They're learning from one another. Ideas are replicating very quickly, especially the ones that are showing promise. And we do a lot of peer-to-peer. -peer. So if you're working on something in your agency and we know that someone's working in another part of the country that might be relevant to the work that we're doing, we love to do some matchmaking so that you can learn from each other very quickly. And um, and it's, it's fun to be part of something uh, that is that is moving together. And I think all of our practitioners are generous with each other, but they share this common drive to improve outcomes. And that's a thread they all have in common. So you're doing some peer-to-peer -peer connections. That's right. I want to throw out another term now, which... I'm afraid it's probably going to scare some of our listeners, uh, and I don't certainly don't want to turn this into a statistical lecture, but one of the key aspects of doing a beta-gov trial, as I understand it, is what we call the randomized controlled trial. Kind of walk us through what is a randomized controlled trial, and why is that so important to try to do? 
So randomized control trials have this nice uh, characteristic that they allow you to really compare apples to apples when you're looking at outcomes. The criminal justice system is plagued by a very big challenge when we're doing research, and that's called selection bias. Uh, the sorts of people who select into programs or appear in a certain court or in a certain living unit in correction settings uh, often have specific characteristics associated with that. And so that when you compare outcomes of one group to another group, you really aren't comparing apples to apples. So with a randomized control trial, it's relatively simple. You either start, you start with what we call the eligible population that could be people, it could be living units, it could be vehicles. And they are randomly assigned to one of two conditions. The one condition is this intervention condition, maybe your new innovation. And the other one is business as usual, so prevailing practice. And you follow them up for as long a period as you need and compare outcomes down the line and see which group did better under those kind of equivalent set of circumstances because the starting conditions were the same. So it really allows you to make strong what we call causal claims because you know you have an apples to apples comparison. Give us some examples of some randomized controlled trials, some beta-gov trials uh, that maybe you're most excited about or best illustrate the types of trials you're doing with BetaGov? Well, we have many sorts of trials, but I'll, I'll, I'll point out a few, specific, specifically from Pennsylvania, that I've been a, a big fan of. The one was a program called the Chill Plan, and it started in a women's facility in, 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 at Paydoc. And what I love about that trial is that it involves what I call collective design. They had people, different sorts of backgrounds, so it was mental health staff, corrections officers came together to design a program that they thought would be helpful for the woman in their care. And the goal was to, if a woman in custody felt as though she was going to be escalating, uh, that she would have the opportunity to, to invoke her own chill plan. So the plan, how would she would want the system to respond to giving her some autonomy over what the, uh, what the actions would be. And it was a simple, simple experiment. It turned out, as far as the experiment goes, quite simple. And they found that the woman who had the option to, to create the chill plans uh, had improved outcomes. Uh, that was since replicated. And the nice thing about inexpensive research, in this case, very inexpensive research, is you can replicate very quickly. So it was done sure. in a second facility and the same, hold, that same, the same finding was found. We've done many things with PayDoc, looking at simple things, you know, like changing spaces, micro, micro changes to the environment, like some, a change to a color pattern to a change to aroma, anything, these small modifications that really can, you know, one, 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 one modification at a, at a time make an improvement in outcomes. We've been testing incentives. You know, how can you get people to comply with medication if they have to, particularly our concern might be antipsychotics. You know, looking at what, what happens when, 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 when a small money incentive is provided, a piece of fruit, uh, a jolly rancher, you know, what sorts of outcomes do we get? But what, we did some training around an officer suicide training, um, you know, it's, certifying officers or training officers around in a crisis in, in crisis intervention teams the um what I loved about the work we've done in PayDoc was just how many ideas we were able to test that leadership really unleashed the agency as an agency of permitting their people to have ideas and to learn. But what I really, really, really admire the most has been the willingness of, of, of the secretary. I think Secretary Rosa gets a lot of credit for this and so do you, Brett. Uh, the willingness to try something as long as it's ethical and seems reasonable and then also failing forward. This is a term you hear in Silicon Valley, this idea that we have to try many things mm -hmm. if we're going to improve outcomes, but that we can, we cannot succeed if we aren't willing to fail cheerfully. And I, I use this language a lot of we have to set up the, the, situ the situation so we're willing to fail. We've had some interesting examples like that where, um, you know, with Pennsylvania DOC, there was enthusiasm in, in trying to reduce the amount of contraband coming into facilities by giving notification, letter notifications to people on the visitor log. 
It turned out it, it was done as a trial. You know, half of the half of half, half received the letters, half didn't, and there was no difference in contraband, but there was a difference in visitation, which was obviously not a desirable outcome. And that was then replicated. Same result found. So you had this ability to kind of learn from that and kind of you know, fail forward and stop doing practices that aren't improving outcomes, so that you can focus on ones that do. It helps staff recognize. And that they can also ask the what if question. What if we did it differently? And that's what the agency has empowered by allowing this pracademia model. And I think what's fascinating too, you kind of touched on it, is that really this is a private sector model that's been around for a long time and makes businesses successful. I know you always talk about Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Um, would you agree that this is something that's that's been around and helps businesses thrive and can really be a model for government in general to thrive. Absolutely. From the early days, we were looking at really successful companies and how they learned. And you know, well-performing companies, whether it's Amazon or Google or Netflix or Subway, they do thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of tests all the time. And, and they, they, they realize that you have to do that. To, to these, these, these improvements in efficiencies, improvements in outcomes all add up. And but. The goal there is to make testing no big deal. Now, we've vaunted this idea. We've put this on such a pedestal. Like this, this academic research becomes this other thing that we do once in a while. Well, we have to make it commonplace, it's something we absolutely do as part of our routine operations. And Amazon, I love to quote Jeff Bezos on this. He said, you know, to, he really attributes the success of Amazon to how much testing that they did. And he said to do that, they had to dramatically reduce the cost of testing so that they can go from doing thousands of tests to tens of thousands mm. of tests and hundreds of thousands of tests. And that's what we're really trying to do with BetterGov. Mm. Reduce the cost of testing so that we can have many ideas because many will fail. But when we're testing many, many, we'll also find the ones that do succeed and we can lean in towards those. Another question I'm thinking of is as an agency like um, the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections starts to get a handful of trial results in, we have a few dozen results Mm -hmm. in now, we're next faced with what do we do? Mm -hmm. Uh, We have something like three dozen trial results. And I guess there's a couple of options. One is to, if we find out it's not working, we we just abandon the idea. The other is to see if there's something there that we can kind of adapt and and make work. And then of course, if it's working, um, what do we do in terms of um, next steps? Do we just go full scale? Um, What kind of advice would you give for um, taking the trial results to the next step at an agency level once these trial results come in? Uh, that's a great question. Now, what, something I really like about rapid cycle research is that it's different in character from more traditional research because of the timelines, right? You can, you can get early results very quickly. You know, in a traditional model, you might wait three years to get to outcomes. Well, we might in three weeks here know that we want to make a modification, right? And you talked about maybe you want to make modifications. Right. So very quickly, we can fine-tune to make sure you really have a, a, an approach that makes the most sense for for your agency. But it isn't. I think once once you have a facility, for example, or a parole office that's, that's made, has, has conducted a test and seen positive outcomes, I have some reservations about rolling that out statewide on the basis of one test. I really think very quickly, we, and, and with the timelines we're talking about, you can do this quickly, right? You replicate, make sure that you're finding that that, that outcome persists, and then you roll it out, you know, at, at, at a larger scale. And I think your department's been really good about that. You know, we've had we've had studies, we've found other facilities. There's been great enthusiasm, I have to say. Your um, the superintendents have been outstandingly good 
to work with. Um, we found you know, facilities where someone raised their hand, we were able to replicate quickly. So we can see, is this a one horse wonder? Is this something that's only gonna work at this SCI? Or is this something that tends to generalize across institutions so that it's worth, worth the secretary's while to, to really maybe now write this into policy? Another thing I hear from some of our staff, not a lot, but some of our staff that we've tried to respond to is this critique of the model that it's kind of all about warm and fuzzies and coddling, in our case, coddling inmates. And it's it's all about this progressive stuff. How would you respond to that? So I think we really need to make sure that the officers realize that this is this is available for all. Uh, if you have an idea of how to improve outcomes, um, this is your vehicle for testing that. We aren't going to be the arbiters to decide you know, what it is that your agency should be testing. We are there to be uh, to facilitate the tests that your agency would like to conduct. Um, and that's, so these are really, we, no, we can only dance with who brings us. These are the tests that we give, the ideas that were submitted to us and we wrap tests around those. If you're listening to this and you're on the other side of the equation, you're an academic. Uh, what would you say to academics that want to get involved in this kind of work? Uh, academics, especially if you don't have tenure, are getting rewarded for publications, those 20 plus page documents that you said no one's reading. Um, but it would be good to see academics mm-hmm. get more involved in working with practitioners and adopting this kind of model. What, what would you say to the, your peers in academia? Actually, we really know we're very young. Um, And as we're growing now, what we're noticing is that we're being sought out right now by several major journals for the the publications even that we are producing with our academics. Um, So what we are realizing is very quickly, we are going to be a breeding place for a lot of really great ideas and a lot of research that can be really moved into high quality, multiple site research. So I think if anything, we really do give an opportunity to researchers who are interested in in publishing, especially those who are under pressure to publish on, on, on pretty aggressive timelines. Because we have the relationships in place, we have the practitioners in place, we have the sites queued up, um, it's very easy to layer on an academic relationship in that as long as they're respectful of the academics, academics have to have co- mm-hmm. are, are yeah. we, we insist that the academic has co-authorship, but it is easy to then move into more formal internal publications. Yeah. Something else I would say to ac- the academic, so A, I think we are a really great potential collaborator. I think also for students, you know, we already, what we're noticing now is it's unusual for students to be able to see a, a, a project from beginning to end yeah, in, in the timeline sure. of, of a yeah. class, for example. But even for, 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 for new faculty who are feeling the publication pressure, I think there's an opportunity to collaborate um you know i think for academics in general though i'd say you know one thing we we do we are very carefully aware of is that not everything can be studied with a randomized control trial this is one way of doing research there are many appropriate strategies for testing something so i would not say that we want to we want to dismiss any other form of any form of research and also say that there really is a role for the more traditional academic model. We are not, what we are not able to do, let me just lay that out there. Uh, We are low cost research, which means we are not able to do the deep theorizing that a lot of the academic our academic colleagues would do. We're not able to do the extensive data keeping around a project that our academic colleagues could do. So when they come in with those well-resourced projects, um, they're able to do deeper dives than we ever will be able to do in our sorts of projects. But what we're hoping to do is to provide, as we think of ourselves as the prospectors of good ideas, is to be on the front lines using our low-cost model to identify areas of promise that our academic partners can then aim their more resource-intensive projects towards. So we think of ourselves as being kind of out there looking out into space and looking for glimmers of light so they can direct their projects more. 
So give us a sense of what do you see for the future of BetaGov? Are there any new and exciting things that you're spanning into that you can tell us about? We are. So we recently, um, you know, actually have a kind of slight rebranding. So I now direct a group called Beta Hub, which includes BetaGov, BetaEd, and Beta Health. And what's so fascinating about how whether we're working in education or within health, they all matter to each other, right? If you're working in corrections, education is also an issue. Healthcare is also an issue. So in our beta ed work, for example, and we've been testing small things about how do you help people learn better? And this is relevant for corrections populations too, or parolee populations. How do you communicate information to people you know, more effectively? And we've been finding that even really simple modifications can make a huge difference in terms of learning. We're now very interested in will be our first beta health exper- experiments will be focused on opioid use disorder in emergency, in emergency department settings. If you could impart one bit of wisdom to our staff at the Department of Corrections, uh, who are new and, and emerging pracademics, what would it be? What would you say to someone out there that's hearing this podcast for the first time, who's just being introduced to BetaGov and this whole new way of doing things? Um, what, what would you say to them? I would say step up. Everybody has a role in helping their organizations learn and improve. Um, you don't have to have a PhD to, to be a pracademic. If you have one, that's great. Uh, but if you don't, that's great too. All it does is it takes a person with a creative spirit, someone who is innovative and someone who's looking around and might be even frustrated you know, about something that they see in their job place or just have ideas for how something can be improved. Don't sit on that idea. Your ideas are gold. Uh, we cannot move the dial on that innovation thought unless you share it with us. We encourage you to reach out to your agency or to us directly. Let us hear what you have in your head. Let us help you wrap a test around that idea. Something we do at BetaGov, which we take very, very seriously, is always crediting the architects of these ideas, which means the, the practitioners themselves. We put out one-page documents describing the results of your work. Your name is always on it. So please reach out. Uh, we are user-friendly, as a person-friendly and agency-friendly, and we'd love to really work with you to, uh, to, to find out what's going to work best for you and the public you're serving. And plug um, BetaGov's website. I know we have an internal website at the Department of Corrections that any of our staff can submit an idea. If they can't find that, where else might they go? Or if we have some listeners here that are not with the Department of Corrections, maybe somewhere else, where can they go to get in touch with you and submit an idea to BetaGov? So you can find us on betagov.org. We are not a government organization. We're housed at NYU, New York University. So betagov.org. And we have, uh, you know, on the website, you're able to submit your ideas directly to us. We always make sure that you hear back from us within 24 hours. And one of our staff will schedule a call from you to learn about your idea and see if we're able to move it to a test. Uh, we don't charge for anything we do. So there's very few barriers to mm, working with us. That's key. We promise that we will uh, always focus on you. We'll care about what you care about and that we'll be as fast as we can and uh, this will be your pilot and we really just play a supporting role to make sure that you can do the learning that you need to do to figure out uh, whether the idea you have is is an improvement in practice. Great. Well, hey, I want to thank you for joining us and this is a perfect way to set off this podcast. This is going to really set the tone for all our future podcasts. This is really what we're all about is trying to build, as you say, pracademics and get the word out there that anyone can be a part of this. I'm just really thankful to have you on our first episode and looking forward to working with you further. Thank you, Brett. It's been a delight to be here. PayDoc has been really our most productive relationship. It's been an extraordinary agency to work with, wonderful leadership, allowing people to learn. Idea. Innovate. Develop. 
Experiment, adapt. This is how organizations grow. Wouldn't it be nice to know that someone is listening to your ideas for growing our organization? Well, we are. If you are a staff member of the PA Department of Corrections or Board of Probation and Parole, and you have ideas for improving efficiency, improving outcomes, or reducing costs, please be a part of our new idea initiative. Your experience is important and your ideas matter. We invite you to submit an idea by emailing your idea to racrbetagov at pa.gov, racrbetagov at pa.gov. A link to this email address can also be found on DocNet under the Initiatives tab on the BetaGov page. Every idea is considered and will be followed up on. And please stay tuned for more info on our idea initiative. We are here for the second interview for our first episode of Pracademically Speaking. And I'm here with Daniel McIntyre. Danny Mack, if you don't mind, can I call you Danny Mack? Absolutely. Okay, awesome. Uh, Danny Mack is our Director of Bureau of Community Corrections here at the Department of Corrections. Um, And I'll let him tell uh, you a little bit about himself. The way we're kind of scheduling these podcasts, we want to dedicate the second half of each episode to a staff member at the Department of Corrections or um, the, the Board of Probation and Parole who's doing innovative things within our department so that we can highlight that good work. But let's just start out, and I want to get a background about you, Danny, in terms of your your background, um, how you got into criminal justice, and I know you have a long and illustrious career. So can you tell us about um, your journey here? Sure. Now, Dr. Buckland, can I call you Brett? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, uh, yes, I have over 30 years in criminal justice, uh, most of that being with probation and parole. I retired in 2012 from Dolphin County as the Deputy Director of Operations for Dolphin County Adult Probation. Uh, During my time there, I was on the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force for 10 years, and then I was also uh, participated with the Drug Task Force in the Harrisburg Police uh, Probation Ride-Along Program. From there, I went in 2012 to the Department of of Board of Probation and Parole, and I was the Deputy Executive Director for Field Operations there. So basically overseeing the agents and uh, the direction for what we do. And then uh, in 2016, I transitioned to the Department of Corrections with Community Corrections. And as you stated, I am currently the Director of Community Corrections, the Bureau of Community Corrections. So most of your career has been on the practitioner side. Absolutely. And then um, over at the Board of Probation and Parole on the management side with um, supervision and now on the Bureau of Community Corrections as director of that. Um, and so you have how many years total? And 31 going on 32. 31, between county and state and yep. all that? Okay, cool. Um, what was your favorite part of your career? You know, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. I enjoy the leadership that we have at the Department of Corrections. I enjoy what uh, the aspect of still working with reentrants. Yeah. Um, just coming out of prison, still transitioning back in the community and uh, helping with that transitional process. It's been very rewarding so far. But um, overall, I, I really enjoyed the marshals because it was yeah. one of those things where it was a team thing and, and you're out there and, and you're dependent on each other. But overall, I really can't say there's one aspect of my career I haven't enjoyed. What what is your purview in the Bureau of Community Corrections? What what does the Bureau of Community Corrections do? Because some of our listeners are not going to be familiar with um, our department. Um, this so uh, we're going to have a broad, hopefully a broad set of listeners. What does the Bureau of Community Corrections? Sure. Do? 
The Bureau of Community Corrections oversees uh, residential and reentry services. So we have um, a dozen centers that we actually run, which are uh, locations that uh, somebody coming out of a state correctional facility that does not have a, an approved home plan and they need some place to go, whether it's just for a group home, whether it's for additional AOD programming, uh, mental health, a dual diagnose. We have facilities that address all those needs and allows for a successful reentry and stabilizes them. And sometimes the board likes to have that in place when they recommend for parole. Uh, we also have facilities that, you know, if somebody's not doing well within the community and they need like a halfway back, as many would call it, uh, they can come back into a center, get stabilized, um, get things on track, get employment, uh, get back together with family reunification. So we have residential services and we also have reentry services. And those reentry services uh, vary from mentoring to family reunification to AOD to sex offender programming. Um, there's a multiple, I think a, a dozen different programs, 11 programs actually that we utilize in order to support the field. So if you have somebody that needs additional programming or wants to get back together with the family um, or just participate in, you know, getting workforce development, uh, day reporting centers, which is a great program in, initiated to enable people that really need different skills to build the resumes, to get uh, interview skills available to them and, and get them ready for the employment world out there. So there's a lot of different tools, including housing. You know, we, we're, we're basically supplying housing for them, but maybe if we give them a little step up, we can get them in that specific housing, support them for a little while while they get their feet underneath them, get back together with the family and start supporting themselves. On the first half of this episode, I interviewed Angela Hawking. You know Angela. Yes. Um, and she has um, started this organization, BetaGov. And I wonder if you could just tell us how you first got introduced to BetaGov. Well, it's funny. I actually was talking to um, Mike Winerowitz, Deputy Secretary Mike Winerowitz, and um, Sue McNaughton, uh, the uh, Director of Communications. And I was telling about virtual reality uh, because what happened was um, Secretary Wetzel, uh, our population of juvenile life is, as everybody's aware, is the largest in the nation with over, I believe, 500 yep. uh, juvenile lifers. So Secretary Wetzel said, you know, everybody think outside the box of how you can impact and reduce the stress and anxiety and help the reentry process for those that do get the opportunity to get released back into the community after 30, 40, or even 50 years. And uh, originally, um, we had looked at virtual reality when I was with the parole board as a training tool. But then I started thinking about if we filmed our centers and these juvenile lifers who do get released could see those centers firsthand, like Im Im basically immerse themselves into the center. I talked to Sue uh, McNaughton and uh, Mike Winerowitz, and they said, you know, as BetaGov is in here talking to DOC about different initiatives and different, you know, aromatherapy and all these other things that people are introducing, um, you should come down there and present. So that's what I did. I went down to one of their meetings. I presented on virtual reality. Um, of course, Angela Hawkins was there and Maureen Hillhouse was there and a bunch of other great people, and they really were interested in it to the point now where it's expanded and, and gone to other states. So that's how I first initiated with it. And so we've now done, or we're somewhere in the process of doing um, at least one trial on um, virtual reality, is that right? We've done two different trials on virtual reality, most mainly incentive-based. So 
Um, we've done an SCI Muncie and okay. at uh, SCI Retreat. Um, and then population transition, so we couldn't get a good uh, snapshot of benefits. At, Mus- at Muncie, we did have a good outcomes based on uh, improved behavior, reduced write-ups. Um, so I, I do think there's a, there's a virtual reality has a, a great place within corrections mm-hmm. and within our field and uh, benefit in many different ways, including training aspects, um, what we can do with it. But the juvenile lifers, with viewing that center, allowed them to, to see that before they actually get there, um, really did help them out, I believe. How did you get introduced to virtual reality? When did you learn about the technology and what it could do? In 2015, I believe, I uh, met with uh, Ethan um, from Encina okay. and uh, Ethan Mueller. And he was introduced to me by Ken Smith, who is a training supervisor with the Pro Board. And they were talking about, you know, what you could view as an agent. You could be in a room, but we could take you anywhere virtually. Yeah. And so scenarios, basically. You're walking in, you see a domestic, you, you see you're looking at the table, what you're identifying, and you can look all the way around. Your partner's there, you know. And it really was uh, an interesting aspect of it. And then when I came to Corrections 2016, uh, I remembered that technology and what it could do. And that's basically how we brought it to uh, to the Department of Corrections and then expanded it to not only looking at juvenile lifers, mm-hmm. but training aspect for us. We've introduced training videos on how to utilize Narcan if you come across an mm-hmm. overdose situation within one of our centers, um, what to do and how to respond. Uh, cell, cell extractions, you know, training tool for you know, whether CEOs want to be involved with that, that type of team or even a room search. So there's a lot of aspects of it, including even um, introducing everyday lifestyles for reentrants. you know, coming out. They mm-hmm. haven't been exposed to, you know, can you imagine going to one of these large department stores? You've been away for 30 or 40 years. You know, I have an anxiety attack or panic right. attack when I walk into yeah. these stores. You know, can you imagine them walking in and seeing 500 different choices yeah. of cereal or chips and stuff it's just overwhelming the number of people in that so to introduce them to that while they're still behind in a controlled setting uh, really benefits them upon re-entry i guess there are countless uh different ways that we could take this technology uh even introducing inmates to state prison before they get here maybe when they're in county introducing them to sei camp hill so that they can get a sense of what it's like when they come upstate. Um, what, what are there other applications you can think of, either for staff or for inmates? Yeah, I think this is a, a great tool not only for inmates to see what it's like behind bars, but as you hire staff to be able to show them what it's like to work yeah, behind the sure. walls, because many of them have never been behind the walls when they apply for a position. So you could utilize it that way. It's also a great tool if you want to look at you know maybe de-escalation or training, um, staff development, skill development, and in actually showing a reentrant how to perform job duties. So there's different technology now where you can teach them to do laundry, you can do do different skills, job interviews. Job interviews yeah. So there's so many different aspects of that. I know Colorado and Oregon and Oscar and other states are looking at this technology and really utilizing mm-hmm. it. Are other state correctional agencies or parole agencies using that? Are they catching on to this? Uh, yes. Uh, we were the first that I'm aware of. Um, but I know that Colorado has okay. uh, also done some stuff with this. Washington and Oregon, I believe, are looking at it in Alaska. What other beta gov trials do you have on the horizon? I know I've seen 
you really get enthusiastic about the virtual reality trials, and I think that was kind of the hook to get you into BetaGov. And now it seems like every meeting I'm in with you, you're talking about other BetaGov, potential BetaGov trials. Um, I know we've talked a little about text messaging. Um, maybe you could talk about that one or, or some other ideas that you see on the horizon that we could test using this same kind of BetaGov approach for testing and getting rapid feedback about uh, if it's working or not. Yeah, so that's a great point. Text messaging is out there. Right now it's with DOC legal and uh, BetaGov is aware of that. They're so wonderful in supporting us on the, in these. They've done, and that's the benefit of having BetaGov, they've done these type of programs already in many other states and had great outcomes. And text messaging was one of those. So. With the thought process here is the SIP population, the state and immediate punishment population, they have a two-year flat sentence, and they have to come in and report when they're on furlough process. So I don't know about you, Brett, but me, I enjoy getting the text messages from my doctor or my dentist because I would miss half of my appointments yeah. if I didn't. Yeah. So the thought process is, and many jurisdictions have done this for missed appointments or uh, for appointments with the probation officer, court appearances, and the outcomes are, are terrific where they've reduced, you know, the number of missed appointments or hearings mm-hmm. by half. Um, so they've done great things with it. And that's the same thing we would do with the SIP population is send out text reminders. Mm-hmm. Hey, you have an appointment tomorrow to see your counselor at your Scranton CCC or Harrisburg CCC Community Correction Center. And that's where we want to go with that is to have them, uh, because they are facing escape charges that they don't report, have them be um, accountable to come in and notified of that. And also send out even positive messaging, you know. So if you have somebody that's, you know, during a specific time of night or, you know, season or holiday, you know, maybe send out something, a support message. We're thinking about mm-hmm. you. Here's a support number you can contact um, if you need any to talk to anybody. Are there any other uh, trials that you've been thinking about or discussing? We have, <laughs> I think there's so many trials. That's the benefit of beta yeah. gov is that there's so many different thoughts and suggestions out there to uh, go in. I don't think we have time in this podcast yeah, to go right. into all yeah. of them, but that's the biggest one I have. We've talked about utilizing what's uh, called sweat patch technology. Okay, yeah. um, that's not off the radar right now. It's on hold. Yeah, but uh, we are looking at that down the road, which is basically drug testing 24/7 through a, a patch mm-hmm. that's put on the arm and it tests the sweat. Uh, It's great technology, and it it typically lasts up to 14 days, Mm -hmm. so it's continuous testing. So we are looking at that down the road, and uh, that's something that Bureau of Treatment Services and and we have been discussing about the SIP population as well. Do you, uh, and and I think you've probably already answered this, but do do you see the benefit, or or what do you see as the benefit in using BetaGov in this kind of model? I think... uh, Folks like you who've come from a long practitioner career aren't really exposed to research, so it can be a new way of doing things um, and maybe even intimidating for some people at first who are um, you know, really focused on the job at hand and not thinking about data and, and how we measure things and, and evaluating things. Um, what are some of the le- lessons you've learned in the BetaGov process and, and what value do you see, do, do you see in BetaGov? Well, if I haven't said so already, I'm probably one of the biggest fans. I, I believe the process, not only for corrections and parole and community corrections, the benefit of having a team set aside just to monitor and review the ideas that we come up with and see what, see what sticks to the wall, 
I love the turnaround process. Instead of, you know, most studies historically would take years sure. before you get right. outcomes and you see what happens. This is months, you know, and, and you're getting a one-page summation that, you know, if you're not an academic, you, you can still understand it. Right. So I can I can sit there and read it and, and see the little graphs and things that keep my interest level because yeah. it's very short and understand whether it was successful or not successful. And having this BetaGov program in place allows anybody to send out their ideas and work with them. And, um, you know, and as Angela Hawkins and Marine Hill House and Secretary Wetzel always stay, always says to us when we have these meetings, you know, if it's if it's legal, if it's ethical, and if it's not cost prohibitive, we're gonna try it. Sure. So it's an opportunity for anybody in any position to submit ideas. and. Instead of sitting there and saying, ah, it's not going to work or, you know, it can't work, you know, put it out there. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's big or small. They love it. So yeah. it's, a, it's a great method. Yeah. Well, um, I have to share anecdotally, uh, when I first met you, you intimidated me because you were definitely a, a street guy coming from parole and supervision. And it's been really cool. And, and I don't mean this in a um, patronizing way, but just to see you really get into beta gov. And I always joke that like, when I start hearing you talk about randomized controlled trials, that gets me really excited. Um, and that's what we're all about on this podcast, too, is trying to get staff that are, are in the zone um, to think kind of outside the box, like you said. Think about rather than just complaining, um, think about, you know, what can we do differently and improve? So I just say that um, parenthetically. Um, what would you say to staff out there, your staff, um, other staff in DOC, other staff in parole, um, who may be thinking about a different way of doing things, but they're not sure if they want to speak up or um, you, are, are even considering um, ideas that they have in their head? What would you? What advice would you give to them? Uh, I would say that you know maybe I was one of those individuals that thinking how can one entity possibly monitor and measure outcomes for hundreds of ideas and literally that's I think Pennsylvania's probably got the highest level of of uh, ideas that have been have been submitted from the last meeting I heard and I thought how could they possibly do that but the entire staff of BetaGov is just unbelievable and uh, they're so encouraging uh, VR virtual reality is something that I just presented at one meeting and it, it went from there and flew off the shelf so it's something that I would say to anybody that you really just have to submit your ideas. Um, the worst thing that could happen is it doesn't work. Uh, but many of these ideas could reduce violence. They could reduce staff assaults. You know, imagine not submitting an idea that may help send somebody home safe at night. You know, that's something we have to work together and make connections. And uh, not only corrections, but pro and make it a better place for staff. And, uh, and the population that we serve. Because reentry doesn't just start upon release. It starts upon reception, not only for us, but indeed for the arrest for the our communities as well. So we really have to start and think outside the box. As Secretary Wetzel originally tasked us to do with juvenile lifers, we need to do that each and every day with our ideas and thoughts and suggestions. BetaGov is a great tool in order to be able to see whether those thoughts and suggestions and ideas actually work. Another thing that crossed my mind uh, related to BetaGov is just the good timing of this for the department, given that we're consolidating between the Board of Probation and Parole and the Department of Corrections. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with our system, parole supervision uh, was under the Board of Probation and Parole historically in Pennsylvania. And the Department of Corrections purview was the Community Corrections Bureau that Danny oversees now. 
and also the SEIs, the state correctional institutions. And recently, through a memorandum of understanding, we've merged the um, Department of Corrections with the supervision aspect of the Board of Probation and Parole. And that's really helped us to um, completely redesign the system from front to end and look at how we do things. Um, do you see BetaGov as playing a role in this process of consolidation? I think not only playing a role, but have played a role in the consolidation process. Uh, they've been important with measuring different ideas, suggestions on how to go about the process. The committees that were formed, uh, the way this has moved forward is, um, as I think, basically uh, the foundation for how anybody should merge agencies. They've done an outstanding job with forming committees, allowing all aspects of both agencies, uh, departments, to get together and voice their opinions. They've had uh, listening committee hearings, and they've had talking uh, pieces where you can go in and uh, voice your opinions and get on committees that interest you and allow us to work together as two different entities, combining our resources and making it smarter, working smarter together so that, you know, things that we used to do separately, we now do together. So. Mm -hmm. I think through that, through attrition, we've been able to reduce some complement, but we streamlined the process. So instead of everybody doing different assessments, we're all going to be doing the same assessment. Mm. And that assessment will work behind the behind the walls as they're transitioning out and on the, or rather on supervision. So there's so many different aspects of this, not only for the training piece, the human relations, the legal, all those things that have worked out um, through this MOU have been phenomenal. And I see this, the steering committee getting these suggestions and ideas, and it's just like, you know what? It's nice to see something work. So it, it, it's, been a, it's been a great thing, and I think BetaGov's been an important aspect of how you measure um, what we're doing and the benefits of what we're doing. And I wonder if you agree with me. I see another benefit of BetaGov is not just being able to measure and figure out if things work, but really giving a voice to our staff. Um, because for for so long, I think it was viewed that the mandates came from up on top and um, leadership kind of dictated the direction we're going to go. And the folks out there who are really actually doing the work and making it happen had felt like they had very little voice. And BetaGov flips that totally on its head and really allows anyone who has a good idea to raise their hand, no matter what rank and file, what rank you are in the organization. Um, would you agree with that assessment? I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I would say this is that not only are your ideas heard and, and implemented, but the, the benefit is this instead of, you know, leadership coming out with this idea and implementing it department wide and statewide and then saying down the road, oh, you know what? This has a different outcome right. than we thought yeah. it was going to be. You know, now we need to yeah, <laughs> now we need to roll it back, and we've seen that how many times. But in this aspect, you can do this, you know, on a pilot program, on a quick turnaround, and say, you know what, that does have a different <laughs> impact than we thought, or it's going to impact something over here. So it might be beneficial, it might not. But you're doing it on a localized, a, a small area rather than rolling out statewide. And anybody can su suggest their ideas, no matter how big or how small. And I encourage you to do so. Um, I want to thank you for being on this first episode. It's been uh, my pleasure to have you on the very first episode. I wanted to have you on because um, I think you're a great person for folks to hear from since you've been through a couple BetaGov trials and um, seem to like the concept. And um, I think people listen to you too in, in the department. Um, so thanks for being on this episode. Appreciate Dr. it. Dr. Buckland, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Have a good day. All right.